0: Hello and welcome to Agios Dos. My name is Bill. Today is June 27th and we commemorate the Synaxis of the Ukrainian Catholic Martyrs. With the rise of the Soviet Union in the 20th century, there was a massive persecution of Catholics in the Slavic world. It is today that we celebrate those martyrs as witnesses to the faith. The Soviets saw the Catholics as being the poison of the Western world. It was the position of the Soviets that if someone was to be religious, they should belong to the state-sanctioned Russian Orthodox Church. Otherwise, they should just be atheists. On April 9th and 10th of 1945, the entire hierarchy of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church was arrested. They were either tortured, killed, or sent to Siberian labor camps. None of the bishops joined the church, however, all of them remained faithful. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of two of these martyrs, Blessed Nicholas Chernitsky and Blessed Vasil Velichovsky. Nicholas Chernitsky was born in western Ukraine in the village of Semakivky on December 4, 1884. He was one of nine children. His parents, Oleska and Pereska, were both poor people and had been raising nine children in a one-room home. Nicholas proved to be a bright child and caught the attention of the wife of their parish priest. It was through her assistance that Nicholas was given the ability to receive an education, otherwise one that would be unaccessible to him, which allowed him to attend high school. He attended St. Nicholas Berza, a boarding school, one which was close to, close to the cathedral where he could attend divine liturgy daily. Nicholas felt a call to the priesthood and applied to theological studies in 1904. For his studies, he was sent to Rome. He studied for the next six years in Rome, establishing in him a fondness for Roman culture and for the writings of Thomas Aquinas. He returned to Ukraine, and on October 22, 1990, he was ordained to the priesthood. You can imagine how his parents must have felt, you know, being from nothing, yet there was their son at the altar, celebrating divine liturgy. The following year, Father Chernitsky was sent back to Rome to complete his doctorate. After this, he became a seminary professor. Chernitsky would not only be a lecturer, but he would be a true spiritual father, now I'm going to read a book from uh, I'm going to read a little bit from the book Blessed Trenetsky and his companions. At first Trenetsky had two rooms assigned to him at the seminary, but in order to be close to the students, he moved to a single room. His room was simple and ordinary, his clothing was also simple. Thus he was very approachable to the students. As a spiritual director, he soon won the love and trust of everyone with his gentleness, love and humility. Nicholas was always ready to serve others. The spiritual formation of the seminarians was a deep concern to Nicholas. He did everything to give them a solid basis for that holiness of life that should characterize every priest. He gave an ascetical conference every week. This was characterized by clarity of presentation and flowed from a deep conviction His personal devoutness and holiness spoke louder than the points of meditation he gave every night. To help the students with their meditation, he prepared leaflets which gave suggestions for meditations and particular examination of conscience. To encourage them to develop an intimacy with Christ, he organized the apostleship of prayer for the seminarians. Now this work became interrupted during the First World War. With many priests being arrested by both the Austrians and Russians and others being conscripted to be chaplains in the army, Father Nicholas would, without the help of a car or a horse, service the spiritual needs of the people, trudging along the battle front without much thought to his own well being. This missionary zeal continued after the events of the war, as his experience likely prepared him for what was to come next. In 1918, Father Trinitsky heard the preaching of some Redemptorist missionaries. The Redemptorists, an order of priests with the mission of evangelizing to the most socially remote people. Father Nicholas confided that he would enter the congregation. Now there is something here that we must appreciate. Here is an established, independent professor who lowers himself to the rank of a postulant and is answerable to people who likely could have himself, that he himself could have taught. Now, as being a redemptorist, there is another defining moment in his life, is when he took up a particular mission to an area called Volyn. There were Ukrainian settles and Orthodox Christians in this area who wished to enter into union. He and his confreres were assigned to villages that were requesting priests, and one of them, one by one, through the preaching of Father Trunetski and his fellow Redemptorists, entire villages rejoined with the Church. Their efforts were so successful; it became necessary to establish a new eparchy for the region, and it would be Father Trunetski who would be a, who would be the candidate, as his biography writes. Father Nicholas was very reticent about this honor. I have been struck by thunder," he wrote to a friend. One of the fathers who lived with him also wrote about his response. When Father Nicholas received the, denom- the nomination of bishop, he went to Rome and there represented himself an absolutely unsuitable and unworthy to be a bishop. However, after discussion with the superior, Gen- superior general, the Redemptorist, and with the Pope, he was marvelously transformed. Though still very unassuming, he nevertheless became conscious that God demanded of him this sacrifice, the elevation to the episcopacy, and showed himself determined and ready for any sacrifice and work that God would ask of him, he appeared full of divine strength. However, due to the onset of World War II, Bishop Chernitsky was unable to spend time in Volyn due to the Russian activity. This was his once vibrant mission ground, now a war zone. He was forced to take up residence in Lviv, in the Redemptorist Monastery. By 1939, the Soviets had control of western Ukraine, and church activity was prohibited. However... Bishop Chernitsky would continue to hear confessions, celebrate divine liturgy, and with metropolitan Shipitzky consecrate one Joseph, a bishop. On the 10th of April, six agents of the police, typically these are brutish alcoholics and criminals hired, outsourced, they came to the Redemptorist monastery in Lviv and arrested Bishop Nicholas Trnitsky. The book describes his arrest. When they returned to the bishop's room, the commandant informed the bishop that the time had come for Bishop Nicholas to leave. He was allowed to take along a little clothing, a pillow, and one quilt. Dressed in a simple cassock made from cheap material, with his overcoat and carrying an old pair of boots, the bishop took leave of his confreres, all of whom were overcome by emotion." On the threshold of his room the bishop turned to Father Devoke and asked him to give a final absolution. At the door of the monastery waited a covered vehicle, a black police van. The vehicle sped away into the darkness. The bishop was sent to prison in Kiev, and there he remained for 18 months. After being accused of being an agent of the Vatican, he was sentenced to 5 years of hard labor. He was placed in many slave labor camps beginning with Marinsk, which was four thousand miles east of Moscow, and ending with Vorkuta, a mine which dwelt in the Arctic Circle. He was forced to travel from one to another in these unhospitable rail cars. They were only fed bread and broth once a day, and their rations were meager. The camps were designed to completely strip you of your own willpower and agency. Now what I'm about to read next are first-hand accounts of people who met Bishop Chernitsky in these prison camps. The following is from a Dr. Anthony Nizinski who was present in one of the labor camps with Chernitsky. The three church dignitaries mentioned, this was, a, this was Bishop Nicholas, Father Peter, and a Metropolitan Yosef, had recently undergone arrests and interrogation and sentencing, whereas I was already recovering from the suffering of the interrogation prison, and I was beginning to manage to survive. The three of them were still experiencing the mental depression that is inevitable in the Bolshevik prison camp situation. The Metropolitan, for the most part, was silent, sought to be alone, and prayed. Bishop Chernitsky openly consoled himself and others around him by repeating that divine assistance was soon to come, because Satan had already reached the peak of his malice. Father Verhun saw everywhere automatic weapons aimed at his head. I, together with other Ukrainians, were quick to come with moral assistance to these dis distinguished novices. This was a great role that could be played by concerned fellow prisoners for the newcomers, who lay trampled and bruised by the boot of the Bolshevik oppressor. There was, at a time, starvation in the Marinsk prison camp, so we had been together longer, secretly organized a plan supplementing the nourishment from our meager funds buying on the sly anything that was available for provisions brought to the camp. Thus it was that they survived those who were in danger of death and exhaustion. Having rested and recuperated a little bit, Bishop Chernitsky did not sit around idly in the barracks. He wandered about the camp zone in search of the most abandoned. Every day he would come to me, look in my face, and find some words of comfort for me as well as he could. Sometimes he would sit beside me, ask me how my health was, how I was feeling, and other things which were most important to us, and often he would say, it will get better. For sure, it will get better. God will not put up with this. We must believe because faith can work wonders. Here he would, with deep conviction, cite the words of Holy Scripture and assure everyone that so it must be. The people who were from Valin, who were in the camp, would flock to him. They knew his best from better times. Have you seen our father today, they would ask me, when, on any given day, they had not been able to see him? Do you think he might be ill? He was such a precious human being, without whom it would have been difficult to survive. He knew everyone by name, and everyone was precious to him. This was his great charism, a gift from God. It was no wonder that Bishop Bishop Trenitsky was forever surrounded by these unfortunate people, because only from him would they receive word of comfort and consolation. I and many others among these mentioned hierarchs were eventually transferred to another Lagar camp, and here Bishop Trenitsky found more unfortunates who needed his good word, Here I saw him more often among people, and now he no longer was empty-handed. Someone from our own country sent him, from time to time, small parcels which he distributed among the unfortunate. Sometimes he would come to me, and slip in my hands at least a couple pieces of sugar, or a head of garlic, murmuring, whatever the house is rich in. Soon there came a renewed assault on the Catholic clergy, all the catholic priests were rounded up in staging area and pro- processed for a transfer in order however for the occasion to provide profit all those who might possess something worthwhile were detained in a criminals barracks where during the night they were robbed we prisoners thought that bishop Trenitsky would not survive much longer but he would have but he would yet have to drink deep to the very bottom of the martyr's chalice Now this next bit of testimony is from a Father Piotr Leoni, a Jesuit. This was the filthiest prison that I had the occasion to see. Bedbugs, roaches, had multiplied by the millions, and at night it was impossible to defend oneself against them because the room was in total darkness. Only when they portioned out supper did they bring a miserable oil lamp which they immediately took away leaving us at the mercy of the parasites which in the darkness became insatiable and more aggressive the three nights that i spent in that prison were a veritable martyrdom now this next bit of testimony comes from it was during a transfer from one concentration or labor camp to another and it's by a dr franz grobauer The bishop was gracious to everyone, and always reminded me of St. Nicholas of my childhood. Tcharinetsky was, alas, too trusting, so that certain unscrupulous individuals often took advantage of him in the most brutal fashion. In the aforementioned transport, there were, besides the so-called political prisoners, also criminal prisoners. These would rob every fellow prisoner, even if he possessed the smallest trifle. The bishop carried with him a large sack, on which he used to sit. One time, several young criminals pushed him off the sack, onto the floor, and the last possession of this prince of the church was gone. Unforgettable was the reaction of the bishop. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. During the months of the long journey, I lay near the bishop on the cold floor of the freight car. We had enough free time to converse about everything. Everything. Unfortunately, the conversation was not easy for me because Bishop Chernitsky was hard of hearing in one ear, and because of the numerous spies that were planted among the prisoners in every one of the freight cars, I did not care to speak loudly. Finally, we ended up talking to each other in Latin. This last piece of testimony is from my father, uh, Vassil Curlis, while he was in the Mordovia prison camp with Bishop Chernitsky. I celebrated the Divine Liturgy every day before wake-up call at my plank bed. The prosphora, the liturgical bread, was sent to us from home, and the wine was made from raisins, also sent to us from home. One priest helped another for a long time, maybe a year, in one of the camps in Mordovia. I brought Holy Communion under one species every day to Father Chernitsky, the Redemptorist Bishop. Until he finally ventured to celebrate the Divine Liturgy himself. Because the Soviets wished to avoid having the bishop die in a concentration camp, they released him to live in Lviv in 1956. This was much longer than the five years he was initially sentenced. He was immediately sent to hospital. Nicholas was so sick, it is said, that it was hard for him to walk, so they did not send him alone, but with him they released a priest and another prisoner to accompany him. He lived his final few years essentially confined to his room, too weak to do anything else but pray. His time in the camp had wasted his body away, his face sunken in and looking like a skeleton. Any health he had vanished, and it was intestinal cancer that would finally take him, On April 2nd, 1950. In this next section, when talking about Blessed Vasil, I'm going to rely a little bit more on the book because we have a bunch of quotations from him, and I think that's pretty cool. So let's begin. Vassil was born in Stanislaviv on June 1st, 1903, to a priestly family. His father, Vladimir, was a priest, the same with his grandfather, Julian. His family was immersed with the faith. It was their ecosystem that they lived in. Shortly before his seventh birthday, on May of 1910, Vassell attended a retreat with his mother where he was dedicated to Mary. He believed that this event was life-changing and that the Mother of God eventually led him to joining the Redemptorists. In 1921, he joined the major seminary in Lviv. However, Wiesel would be apparently sort of a troublemaker, though I am questioning the standards that are being implied here. And I'm going to read from the book now just to illustrate why I do find that strange. At the seminary, many men were in attendance there because it was the only place to obtain a higher education. The influence of these students was not always positive. Sometimes Vassil followed their bad influence, sneaking into the city, smoking heavily, and even taking an occasional drink. However, he never fell into serious sin, he says of himself in his autobiography. In spite of my lightheartedness and inclination towards evil, divine grace, without any merit of mine, saved me from dangerous, proximate occasions, and sometimes, when such occasions occurred, saved me from big, bad falls. Oh my, the occasional drink. The standards are high for being a saint, folks. So let's continue. On October twenty-fifth, 1925, Vassil was ordained to the priesthood. We're going to skip ahead now to a point during the Second World War in the 1940s, and uh, this is where I believe the, the rubber really hits the road. In early 1940, the Soviets wanted to force the Redemptorists out of the monastery. When the people found out, they protested en masse to the authorities. When the Soviets saw so many ready to shed their blood to prevent them from occupying the monastery, they dropped their plans. On the Feast of the On the Feast of the Mother of Perpetual Help that year, Father Vassil planned the unusual procession through the streets with the icon. Since the city was occupied by the Soviets, this procession would be deemed illegal. But when Father Vassil saw the crowd on Our Lady's Feast Day, over 20,000, he decided to go ahead with the celebration. The procession was itself a sermon on the power of the Eucharistic Jesus and on the blessing of our Mother of Perpetual Help as they paraded through the streets in full sight of the Communists. Some tried to disrupt the procession, but all attempts failed. Father Vassil preached a sermon on the triumphant power of Jesus and Mary. The people lingered long afterwards, as if caught up in the prayerful exaltation. Days later, Father Vassil was interrogated by the NKVD, the Soviet's internal secret uh, security police force. When asked why he organized the religious procession, he tells about his answer in his autobiography. Beyond the borders, they are writing that you are persecuting us. If I hadn't organized the procession, it would have been taken as proof of such a persecution. I knew that you would not give permission. However in order that those beyond the borders would not have an excuse to speak about persecution, I organized the procession without permission. I did it for the sake of your prestige and reputation. This cunning answer caught the interrogator by surprise and had to agree with the priest. Suddenly, another NKVD officer entered and began to abuse Father Vassil. He threw threw himself at the priest, fist flailing at his hand. Father Vassil was taken back by the wild and rabid attack. The officers screamed, Confess, admit it, or you go immediately against the wall like a mongrel dog. Admit it, scoundrel. Father Vassil looked at his attacker and firmly said, yet calmly, To this uncultured man, I will not answer, not a single word. In his autobiography, Father Vassil describes what happened next. I turned away from him, sat with my hands on the back of the chair, and began to say the rosary, holding it high in my hands. He continued to shout. My head rang. I was almost unconscious. I kept praying, Hail Mary. Of that prayer, I am aware of nothing else. A different interrogator took over, this one more a gentleman. Father Vassil spoke with him, signed some papers, and was released. Because Father Vassil was no, well known and popular in Stanislaviv, the NKVD were afraid to arrest him. Yet he was warned by the NKVD, the NKVD officer that he would not be arrested because of the support of the people, but that once he sets foot out of Stanislaviv, he would be swiftly arrested. So Father Vassil continued his apostolic work there in the city. Now, during the Second World War, there would be a brief period of respite when the Germans came in. Not an ideal situation, but it took stress off of the church, and they were able to act and move more freely. But at the end, at the close of the Second World War, the Russians were to advance back in again. By fall 1944, the Russians were again approaching Helichnia, pushing the Germans back. Ukrainian Catholics knew that persecutions experienced earlier in the war would intensify. The redemptive superior abandoned Ternopil, but the provincial felt concerned about the Soviets finding an empty monastery, so Father Vassil volunteered to be present when the Russians arrived. The provincial reluctantly allowed him to go, realizing that great danger awaited. Father Vassil obtained a ticket from Lviv to Chernobyl, but the train only went halfway because of the advancing front, so he hitched a ride in a military car to the outskirts and completed the trip on foot. The shelling of the city had already begun, and it was being evacuated. He was allowed to enter only to retrieve documents from the monastery but of course he had no intention of leaving. He made his way to the Redemptorist Monastery and found a few confreres there who were happy he had come. All Redemptorists ignored the evacuation order and served those who stayed behind. Appointed Superior of the Monastery again, he began doing limited missionary work in various towns nearby. Meanwhile, the NKVD waited for the opportunity to arrest him. In July, after the hierarchy was arrested, he would be locked in the basement of the KGB headquarters for two months. He was asked if he would join the Russian Orthodox Church. He refused, and they eventually transferred him to Lviv. For two years, he was interrogated. The Soviets were trying to convince him uh, to indict himself in criminal activity. Well, he refused to confess. Eventually, they found a notebook where he had scribbled prayers These prayers said the following, Lord, save us from the red band, and may the red horde never return to us. See, now I find that really inspiring and very deep and meaningful. After two years of interrogating him of trying to find criminal activity in him, they could only convict him on his own prayers and the criminal activity that was within themselves. Moving on. Father Vassil was put on death row. The other inmates noticed that he was a priest. He had a beard like a priest. During this time, he also taught them how to pray. He gave them absolution and celebrated liturgy with them. However, at one point, he was called from his cell to be told that his sentence was reduced from death to ten years of hard labor. He, just like Chernitsky was transferred to multiple labor camps, some in harsh Arctic uh, conditions. One such place was again Vorkuta, just like Chernitsky. In Father Stefanik's book, he decided that when Tsar Nicholas was looking for a place to send prisoners, Vorkuta was deemed too inhospitable. However, for the Soviets, I assume it was just right. There was a moment where there was a prison strike within the camp. And it resulted in the deaths of 64 inmates. And Father Vassil was blamed for starting this prison strike. So, deeming to be a dangerous element within the the labor camp, Father Vassil was sent back to prison, a, a prison outside of Moscow. Father Vassil was eventually released on June 9, 1955, from Moscow, and he went to live in Lviv to be active in the Underground Church. In 1963, Bishop Joseph was released from prison. Remember how he was consecrated by Chernitsky and Chapditsky? The bishop called Father Vassil to come to Moscow to meet him in a hotel room. And Vassil came. When he arrived, the bishop, without so much of a warning, consecrated Vassil, a bishop, right there on the spot. Immediately after that, Bishop Joseph Salipchi left with his entourage for Rome. And there, in a dingy hotel room in Moscow, now Bishop Vassil, he was the only known member of the Ukrainian Catholic hierarchy in Ukraine. He returned to Lviv to carry out what he had done before hear confessions, say liturgies in secret, only this time he was also secretly ordaining priests and consecrating bishops. However, in 1968, he would be placed back into prison. As the book reads, In 1968, the police undertook a massive search of the homes of the Ukrainian Catholic priests. The centenary of the birth of Lenin was drawing near, and the Bolshevik regime tried every possible means to mark the jubilee of their founder's birth by finally eradicating the remnants of religion. On October 18th, the Soviets began to shake up in Lviv, searching homes of Ukrainian Catholic priests. They confiscated everything religious, vestments, books, sermons, crosses, even photographic and recording equipment. They also broke into Bishop Velichovsky's home and destroyed his prayer room. Bishop Vassil was arrested on January 2, 1969. The government cited that his crime was anti-government activity revealed by his manuscripts. He was tried in court and sentenced to three years' imprisonment with psychological torture. Bishop Vassil served his sentence at Kormunarsk in Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. After a few months there, he became seriously ill, and his sister sent several petitions to the government, including the Supreme Court requesting her brother's release. The Soviets did not reply, but forbade him to write his sister. With no news from from him. For a long time, the rumor became widespread that Velochevsky had died in prison. Komonarsk was a most terrible imprisonment. The bishop became sick with heart disease, and his feet began to swell so that he was unable to walk. At the point of death, he begged to be taken to a hospital, but was refused. Then for some reason the administration replaced the prison director with a Ukrainian official who having mercy on the bishop immediately took him out of the ho- took him to the hospital an older woman doctor who may have recognized him treated him after a week the swelling of, of his feet subsided but never fully regained his health the drugs administered in the prison hospital were meant to cause heart attack so he would die However, certain nurses pitied him and faked his injections into the mattress. Thus, he lasted longer than the authorities expected. On January 27, 1972, Bishop Vassil completed his second imprisonment, the time the Bolshevik regime did not allow him to return to Lviv. Instead, they sent him to Kiev, and there issued him a departure visa to Yugoslavia. The government concealed from him His expulsion from the USSR, by then, they knew he was a bishop, and they did not want to have a bishop of the Ukrainian Catholic Church around. Also, his health was ruined, and Moscow did not want him to die there in prison. Father Vassil recounts the term of his expulsion. They told me that a little rest would not hurt me and that my sister would be glad if I visited her. So I found myself on a plane to Yugoslavia with a passport in hand and a visa for an undetermined term beyond the border. This was the devious methods of banishing me from Ukraine. Now, after resting for some time in Yugoslavia, Bishop Vassil then went to Rome. He went to Rome and met with now Cardinal Yosef, and with Pope Paul VI. It was there that it was decided that he should move to Canada. He then arrived in Winnipeg on June 15, 1972. Father Vassil didn't live another year. In February of 1973, he became very ill, a result from his treatment in the internment camps. Those drugs given to him in the Ukrainian prison hospital finally caused his death, Blessed Vassil died on Saturday, June 30th, 1973. And Blessed Vassil is still in Winnipeg. You can go visit him. A few years ago, his body was dug up and was found incorrupt. There is now a shrine to Blessed Vassil in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So you can go visit there if you like. Now let's wrap up by praying the tropar for Blessed Vassil. O Holy Priest Martyr Vassil, you lent yourself to the apostles' way of life and succeeded them on their throne. Inspired by God, you found the way to contemplation through the practice of virtue. Therefore, you became a perfect teacher of truth, fighting for the faith unto the shedding of your blood. Intercede with Christ our God, that he may save our souls. Thank you very much for listening. This has been your Daily Dose of Agios. Ukrainian martyrs, pray for us.